Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Tarek Iridella. And I'm Amy Scaria. And today we are so happy to welcome award-winning composer Jesse Ayers. Jesse's music has been performed around the world. Uh, He was the first winner of the American Prize for Composition. He was also the winner of the 2016 Opera Kansas Zepic Modern Opera Composition Competition. He is best known for his orchestral and concert band Surround Sound Concert Stories. We'll be listening to probably his most most popular one later on in the show. His music explores the intersection of the spiritual and natural worlds and the redemptive intervention of God in the affairs of the human race. Jesse is also a professor of music at Malone University in Ohio. And Jesse, welcome. We are so happy to have you here with us. I am happy to be here with you. We were chatting before the show and we said, uh, Tarek and I met on a group called Orchestra List. And this is where probably about 20 years ago, Jesse, you and I connected there as well. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It's a good group uh, made up mostly of composers and conductors. And a lot of people ask a lot of really in-depth questions on there and and, uh, subsequently get to know each other through there and build some connections, which is really wonderful. Jesse, talking about your music, talking about the scope of your music, you know, you've won a lot of prizes, very significant prizes. The American Prize comes to mind. And I was wondering what your experience was like winning that prize, writing for it, and then subsequently finding out that you had won it. Well, it came as a very wonderful surprise. Um, uh, I had written the piece earlier. It was um, The piece was called The Passion of John Brown. It was commissioned by the Akron Symphony Orchestra. The conductor, Christopher Wilkins, uh, is very thoughtful about how his orchestra uh, intersects with the community they're in. And they were coming up on the 150th anniversary of John Brown's famous raid. John Brown, the abolitionist in the 19th century, described as the spark who ignited the Civil War. It was coming up on the 150th anniversary of his raid at Harper's Ferry. John Brown spent a significant amount of time in Akron. He was born in Hudson and lived there a long time, which is close Uh, He moved around a lot, peripatetic, uh, but then he came back and worked in Akron for some time. Uh, And and anyway, the orchestra couldn't find a piece, so they came to me and said, do you want to write something? So I did a piece for orchestra narrator that tells his story, uh, and then I submitted that for the American Prize uh, and uh, was really thrilled when I saw that it had made it to the semifinals, you know, and then you wait a while, and then the finalist list came out. Uh, and then one day I got the email saying, if we have your permission, you can be the winner. They, I, uh, he asked permission first before he announced <laughs> it. And I said, oh, yeah, let me think about it. <laughs> 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 and I said, of, of course. So that was um, real exciting. And, of course, it's good for a career. You know. And what kind of success does a composer typically see as a result of winning a prize similar to the American prize? Well, I... Uh, I think it comes in slowly. It's it's something else when you're contacting a conductor, you know, that your signature says, you know, winner of the 2011 American Prize. It adds a little like, oh, well, maybe this is a score I should look at. Uh, I can't say that the phone started ringing right away, uh, but then it led to other performances. That piece has been done, 
I forgot now three or four other times, and then I've done a band transcription, and the band version's been done a few times. So it does lead to other performances, and it's hard to measure. You know, it's it's not that you can match this prize for this piece led to more performances of that same piece. It does to some extent, but it it does help open doors. And just nice. talking about prizes, um, the, you your piece Beneath Suspicion, which I'd love to share with our listeners. Uh, won the Opera Kansas Zepic Modern Opera competition. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about that piece. Um, it is, this is Beneath Suspicion. It's a chamber opera with two sopranos, violin and piano, uh, specifically performed by Soprano Compagni, uh, which is, I, I gathered as a duo of sopranos. Yes. Um, and this is based on a true story of two daring women who helped turn the tide of the American Civil War. Will you tell us about these historical women and how you conducted research, how you discovered them and how you conducted research for this opera? Well, I had been contacted by Soprani Campagni, and that is Tammy Huntington and Letha Dawson, the Sopranos, and Phoenix Kim Park, their collaborative pianists. They're based in Indiana. And they had this fabulous project, um, Portraits of Women. And they contacted a few composers, said we'd like to commission several composers to write for us uh, because so much of the operatic literature for uh, a soprano is for a solo role. And they didn't think there was so much duo role and also where the two sopranos work together rather than competing for the same part. You know, we're up against each other at the auditions rather than we're working together. Uh, I'm not explaining it as well as, as they did. And then specifically, they said so many of the roles in opera, the woman is the object of love or she is the lover scorned who's getting even. And it's all centered around, um, you know, women in relationship to romantic relationships. Uh, and they wanted things specifically contributions women have made to the culture. And so uh, I was over there. I think we had 10 or 12 pieces they commissioned. It was a huge undertaking. So anyway, I had been commissioned to do this and I was trying to think of, you know, something to do that would lend itself to two sopranos and I would get an idea and reject it and another idea and think, no, I think that's been done to death. You know, um, some of the biblical things like Mary and Martha or Ruth and Naomi, uh, you know, that, that come to mind. And my wife said, wait, she came in one day, she was, uh, she called out to me, said, I've got it. And she said, and she told me about this story. And so then I started researching it, just doing a lot of Googling and find out. And so here's the story. It's a true story. As you said, two extremely daring women in Richmond, Virginia, who lived at the time of the American Civil War. Okay. And what I like about this story is by external appearances, these two women are polar opposites in almost every way you can think of. One is wealthy, one is poor. One is middle-aged, one is barely 20 years old. One is white, one is African-American. One is the daughter of a business leader. As a matter of fact, her father was a former mayor of Philadelphia before he moved to Richmond. But the other woman is a freed slave. But they were close friends, almost family, and they are both daring firebrands. They're both passionate abolitionists, and they're doing what they can to fight against slavery. So one of the things the wealthy woman did, her name is Elizabeth Van Lu, the Van Lu Mansion, I think, may still be standing in Richmond. She was known around Richmond as Crazy Bet. I'm not quite yeah. sure why. Some people say uh, that she sort of feigned craziness so she could get away with some of her spying. Other people say, no, she was just crazy because when her father died, she freed all her slaves. 
so she put her money where her mouth was. She freed all of her slaves, and then she used the fortune she had inherited to buy back the freedom of the family members of her former slaves that her father had sold in, you know, to someone else. She bought them back and set them free. So she, uh, at the end of the war, she was impoverished. Okay. Then one of these former slaves she freed is a young woman, maybe 1920, we're not sure, named Mary Bowser. Mary has a remarkable mind, and they do have records of this. She had a photographic memory. She can memorize lengthy conversations word for word. We're talking about people can talk a couple of hours, and she could repeat it all back word for word. Mary, I mean, Elizabeth, the older woman, recognized this and sent her to Philadelphia. There was a school there called the Quaker School for the Colored so that she learned to read and write. I don't know how much education she had, but she could read and write. And then really importantly, she could glance at a document and memorize it. And so I don't want to give away the story yet, but she comes up. The the opera I wrote is a, a one scene where she and Elizabeth are together and Mary is revealing this daring plan she has thought of to help spy for the Union to try and end slavery. It's a daring plan and it's very dangerous for her. So that's what we're about to hear when we we get ready to play the sample. Mm. And it's, uh, well, and so I wanted to say to our listeners, for anyone who thinks they, if we have listeners who think they do not like opera, uh, don't change the channel, I assure you, you <laughs> <like> this. <laughs> so this is Beneath Suspicion performed by Soprano Compagni uh, in Kansas. Is that right, Jesse? No, they are in Indiana. Oh, I'm sorry, in Indiana. This is Indiana at Indiana Westland. And I will say we're because of the length, we're starting into the piece, say five or six minutes. And I did want to add this from a composer's point of view. One of the things I had to deal with was if I try and set the music um, set this piece in the style of the 19th century, that music may be too familiar to us now to convey any real emotional depth, at least as far as folk music, I mean, things like Stephen Foster. But yet you have to musically create the settings of the audience right away. I, I didn't want the audience to have to have program notes. I want it to start rolling. And of course, having a singer in a hoop skirt certainly helps. So it opens with a solo violin that was very much a um, nod to the Ken Burns series. It starts, what is that? The uh, Ashkenan Farewell viol- mm-hmm. fiddle tune. So it starts with a single violin playing a fiddle-like tune. And then that does the setting. And then there's some small talk to get it going. And then where we're going to start is um, the older woman, Elizabeth, is noticing that the younger woman is worried about something and trying to hide it, you know, trying to put on a a smiley face when there's something really gnawing at her. And so she finally says, I've known you since you were a baby. Now come clean. You know, I don't need protect and tell me what's worrying you. And that's where we're going to pick up right now. She's about to reveal this daring plan.
was Beneath Suspicion by composer Jesse Ayers. Jesse, that is such a powerful excerpt from your opera. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I worked hard on it. Yeah, it's a stunning piece. I would love to um, see or hear the entire work. I'm curious, um, who created the libretto for this opera? I did. (laughs) You did. And how did that go? (laughs) Well, I, I did it once before. I have a large work for concert band and mezzo called Rahab, about Rahab the harlot of Jericho. It's yes. a 45-minute work. So I thought I'd give it a whirl on this. I thought, well, I'll see what I come up with. And then I always have the option, if I don't like it, then I can approach some people about either helping me or writing a new libretto that's more workable. Uh, and then uh, uh, things I've learned over the years, well, you know, you draw on everything you've learned. We've all seen a lot of movies. I've seen a lot of live theater. So you you picture different people, how they would play the part. And then also to draw on uh, the, the two characters need to have a different speech pattern. Uh, Elizabeth Van Loo, the older wealthy woman, is going to come from a very refined family, whereas Mary, the freed slave, came, you know, from, from that culture. Uh, and so for her, I was able to draw on my background. I spent most of my life in East Tennessee where I was born. So I have a lot of, you know, relatives, aunts and uncles. And especially I go back to my childhood to the the great aunts and uncles, the folks that were older when I was a little boy, just curious figures of speeches that they had or things I heard where I was just somewhere as a kid where one of the grownups would say something. So some of those... uh, Fixing to, which means I'm getting ready to, like I'm fixing to get mad. I mean, mm-hmm. to look out. <laughs> and and uh, we did not hear this excerpt, but early on, there's the piano fades in Dixie. It's supposed to be the recruiting band marching in the background. It you know crescendos in, gets louder, and then fades out. And and Elizabeth Van Loo says, "How many more times are they going to play that?" And Mary says, "I'm fixing to put cotton in my ears." Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, Elizabeth Van Loo says something's troubling you, Mary says you discern rightly. Nineteenth um, century actually had better vocabulary. When you read, well, some of the things in the um, 
Ken Burns thing and that one um, a letter to Sarah. It's been said as a song from uh, a soldier getting ready to go into battle and he's writing her a letter. And it's so eloquent. And you think, and this person might have only had a grade school education, writes better than any of us do today. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she mentions, I studied those Quaker folks. So she's not talking about just the lessons, but I studied the people instead of saying I observed them. And then she says, I finally puzzled it out instead of saying I figured it out. And then especially one, she's talking about her her plan to spy. And she says, the fruit hangs low for the plucking. And I, we're probably all familiar with the term low-hanging fruit, excuse me, low-hanging fruit. Oh. But, you know, the fruit hangs low for a plucking. Somebody who's had the experience as a field hand, you know, picking the fruit. And, and they, they see the analogy of, you know, from their point of view. Uh, then also, Folks in the 19th century, and especially these were Quakers, uh, were much more biblically literate than a lot of us are today. So you heard toward the end where she, just before she says she's going to go back into slavery, so because she's going to be able to spy in Jefferson Davis's home, and she says, I've got to face the fiery furnace. Well, in that time, and to folks now that are biblically literate, they know that's a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being tossed in the fiery furnace because they refused to worship the king rather than God. And then when she's she's saying, you can't do this, it's too dangerous, she said, well, I turn tail and flee to Tarshish like old Jonah. Well, that's obviously a reference to the Jonah of the Old Testament, who instead of obeying God, tried to flee to Tarshish and then was thrown off the ship. Uh, And then she follows that by saying, no, this here Esther was for such a time as this. And of course, that's a reference to the book of Esther. So I I called a lot on my own knowledge of, of Old Testament, New Testament, but that um, people frequently would re- would just quote a little bit of a Bible verse or a story to somebody, and they say, yeah, I get your point. I see what you're saying. So those are some of the things I did to try and make the libretto sound believable. Yeah, it's got a lot of depth to it as well. It sounds like you put a lot of thought into that. And we, when you were talking about low-hanging fruit, um, I, I wonder if you were also thinking of what I thought of immediately was the reference of the song Strange Fruit, which was made famous by Nina Simone. I know that song, um, yeah. but and I and that actually uh, Billy Holiday recorded that too. She I'm, did, but no, I, I did not have that in mind. I really just had the you know I'm I'm picking fruit. You know I can go in there, uh, and they're going to think I'm an ignorant slave. They think I'm a woman, so I you know that I can't comprehend things. I can be literally reading their mail and passing the information on, and they'll talk like I'm not even there. Mm. And I should say for our listeners, I may have been wrong saying Nina Simone made that famous. That's I love Nina Simone so much, but you're right. Billie Holiday performed that. But Strange Fruit is a, for our listeners, is a song that references uh, the practice of lynching about mm-hmm. Americans in the South. Yeah. yeah it's um, a dark, dark song. It's very dark, um, but it was so important. And uh, I know, I think Billie Holiday and or Nina Simone were, were threatened and, and sort of you know, people did not want them to sing it, but it was an important song. Um, and I noticed too, you also, you know, you, you were talking about the text that you reference and the colloquialisms, the Southern colloquialisms. Um, and Jesse, you and I have, I've told you this before, but I married a Southern man. So when you were talking about them, I, I hear them from where my husband is from as well, but you also quote some musical, um, idiomatic musical things from that time period. You quote, you've got some folk music, some hymns, and some spirituals. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you incorporated those things into the music. 
I do. Well, I did some research to see what music was available at the time. And this was early on before I wrote a note. Uh, and I had a pretty long list, but um, some that came to mind, Aura Lee, which is a well-known song and actually quoted in the piece early. We didn't hear that section, but it's almost like a little background music while the singers are singing counterpoint over the top to carry on their conversation. But Aura Lee is going on. Dixie, which most people associate with the South, but what I learned researching this, Dixie was popular in both the North and the South. Abraham Lincoln frequently requested it be played at the White House. Everybody, it was just a catchy tune and they liked it. And then I found out, although one person claimed to write it, uh, it more than likely was written by two African-American brothers that lived here in Ohio in, I think, one county over from me. And uh, I won't go into it now, but the text actually was, um, I guess, a coded text you know, like, oh, yeah, I just can't wait to go back to the land of cotton. And that Dixie was actually a man named John Dixie, who was a station on the Underground Railroad. So when they say, we want to go away to Dixie, it means we're escaping on the Underground Railroad. Now, that was, I read on the Internet, hypothesis by somebody may or may, may, or may not be true. But anyway, Arlie Dixie, uh, the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, that the two sing as a duet at the end. Uh, it was written in 1721 by Isaac Watts, the text. So it had been around a while, uh, but it was in the soldier's hymn book, both sides, Union and Confederacy. Soldiers were issued a Bible and a hymn book. And it was in both of those. And I picked that hymn, um, especially the, the text in there, must we be care because it, it, the text fit in with the point of this story. Was oh, I am tongue twisted, sorry. Must we be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. And so it's, and it says the saints in all this tragic war shall conquer though they die. They see the triumph from afar by faith's discerning eye. And so to me, that encapsulated what these characters say. Yeah, I might do this and they might catch me and I might be killed, but it's what has to be done. And that sooner or later we, you know, slavery will end and we'll see an end to this. And then, uh, so in the beginning Oh, and the opening fiddle tune, and you heard it at the end, that fiddle tune is actually original, but it's, uh, maybe I should say adapted. I took the melody of Am I a Soldier of the Cross and just added some embellishments to make it sound like a fiddle tune. So that then when you hear that in the beginning, when they sing the hymn at the beginning, it, it ties the beginning and the end together. And then also at the end, while the um, they start singing Am I a Soldier of the Cross, but then Mary starts singing and it. I'm lucky it worked, the two worked together, go down Moses, or some people know it by let my people go, which although talking about Moses at the time, it was sung about, well, yeah, Israel was slave in Egypt and we're a slave here. And God says, let my people go. So that one singing, am I a soldier of the cross? The other is singing, let my people go. I was really happy with that, that it worked out. Uh, don't know, the idea sort of came to me to try it and it, it fit very neatly. It's such a beautiful moment because it sort of builds to that. You have that uh, soprano come in with the solo violin together and before the gorgeous duets between the sopranos. And it's just so compelling. Um, one of the things I love about your music, I've, I've known your music for a long time because, like I said, we connected probably about 20 years ago um, when I was just kind of entering the world of composing, um, was I love your um you have a drama in your music, but I also love your harmonies. You have such rich, compelling harmonies in your music. Oh, and, um, yeah. And I'm, a, uh, I'm not a pianist, as you may know. I'm a percussionist like Tyrick. So uh, nice. 
rhythms, complex rhythms come in. I don't have to think about those. I just imagine them. There they are. So the harmonies I work at, of course, I've been a music theory professor for a long time. So that certainly comes in. But of course, most of that study is about, you know, traditional, you know, freshman theory, sophomore theory. Uh, But at least it's this place to bounce off from. But this piece was hard because I was trying to find harmony that was dark enough when she's singing Freedom was right, strange at first. I was born a slave. My mama was born a slave. Her mama was a slave. I needed something dark enough uh, to convey the, the the depression, the darkness, the evil of generational slavery. Mm. That when Mary was set free, she didn't know what that was. I mean, she'd never been free. Her mother didn't know. I mean, she didn't know anybody except what she observed at a distance of white people. So um, I had to work a lot at the harmony to make sure it was dark enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting to see what, you know, when we create a story and with, with opera, it's different because we have the text, but, um, and you work quite a bit with text, but, um, but, you know, you also are telling the story through the music when you're talking about coming up with harmonies, you know, that can really sort of color and guide a listener in the emotive part of, you know, in terms of what the listener is feeling. Right. Um, Right. And, you know, you, you, I had the great honor of teaching theory, co-teaching theory, and then teaching a, a couple of classes at Duke when I was earning my PhD. And boy, theory, you know, we say, well, it's traditional, but you certainly can get a lot of uh, tricks of the trade out of. <laughs> oh, you sure can. <laughs> and it's usually looking past the surface detail, like, you know, the, the students are sort of trying to get the surface detail and how do you spell that chord and what is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you teach the same piece, you know, through the years, you start to see things that you didn't see initially. And mm-hmm. there's a lot to learn, obviously, from studying the music of others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that uh, that lineage that we all kind of draw from. And I have to say my my hat is off to Soprani Campagna because the initial commission was for a work for a soprano duo, five to seven or eight minutes long. And I think almost all of us came back with something close to 20 minutes long. So they had scheduled so much rehearsal time for this weekend seminar. And then they were meeting nights and weekends and having retreats and because they got a whole lot more music than they bargained for. And they did it all well because they're professionals. But so my hat is off to them for, and then they had to work, you know, they would email me or say, Hey, look, this is not, working for the human voice, uh, you know, you have to work this a little bit differently. And so we would work on those things together. I like to do that work with the initial performers. Uh, there's always things they know about their instrument that I don't know. The same thing, I'm not a pianist, so writing a piano accompaniment at times, Phoenix has to say, you know, if I had three hands, this would be fine, but I only have two. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and you look at the best way or say what suggestions like, you know, well, I would leave off these notes. Well, OK, that works. Let's let's X those out. So performers are a great help to me. Uh, well, one, they breathe, breathe life into the music that are just dead notes on a page. That's the big thing. But then just on the practical side of, you know, if you did this, it would have the exact same effect and would be 10 times easier. And we're not going to miss the notes and it's going to be uh, more effective for your audience. Those things are invaluable to learn. You know, and I wonder too. Your your music is so inviting um, to maybe someday I'll be able to have the opportunity to be in the audience for one of your pieces. But um, it's so inviting, and I wonder too if that's not a reflection of you know we've all met composers who say this is what I'm writing and it's going on the page this way, and um, you know forget the performer; they can just figure it out. But 
I think when you approach music in the way that you do as a collaborative thing and sort of learning from the instrumentalist and saying, you know, I'm not a pianist, I'm a percussionist. So I look to the pianist to tell me, is this idiomatic? And by the way, I am a pianist and I have to say that piano part is, I I would have assumed you played piano because it's very idiomatic for the piano and um, is a great piano part and sounds very fun to play. Um, And it also supports the singers very well. And for our listeners, what I mean by that is um, he's got harmonies that sort of um, match with what the singer is, is singing. So I've heard singers tell me before that, you know, if they have an accompaniment that doesn't do that, they sort of feel dropped and they sort of feel hanging, but you, you do a brilliant job of supporting the singers. Um, so yeah, you worked with some great performers, but you also created a very, uh, very powerful and technically sound piece. Thank you. It was it's actually a little challenge. I usually write for orchestra or an, a symphonic band. Bands, band world seems to change names. It was concert band, symphonic band, wind ensemble, wind orchestra. I think the most common now is wind symphony. Um, but anyway, I usually write, you know, for 50, 60, 70 people. So it's a little daunting for me to say, I only have these two hands. Now, pianists have, can do a lot with those two hands, but uh, then I don't have all those colors. So then especially you have to look for the harmony because I don't have the color. And I can't say, well, I'd like a big cymbal crash here. Can you squeeze one more person in the car for one cymbal crash when you do your tour? <laughs> can't do that. So I, I want to go back to something you said to really underscore it for uh, the younger composers that might be listening. Uh, my training early on was you just write what needs to be written and it's up to the performer to rise to the occasion and no matter how difficult they're supposed to do it. I think that's a mistake. I mean, to some extent, you need to do that. You need to say, but I need this for this piece. But you, my philosophy is I, can, I don't think it takes a lot of talent to write a piece that's so difficult nobody can play it. And I've had some composers brag to me like, well, nobody can even perform my work because it's so difficult. And I think, so what, I, I don't see that takes any technique. It just takes writing ridiculous passages. So um, I think a lot about the performer, the less rehearsal time it takes, the easier it will be for them to concentrate on the music instead of the note learning and the technical things. Now that said, of course, you don't just write everything in half notes and whole notes on a C major scale. Uh, You still have to have that depth, but given a choice of a passage, then I look like this is a little complicated. Is there a way to make this easier. And maybe it's a time signature change. I'm not changing the notes, but what will make this, especially for an orchestra, how will everybody know what the conductor's doing? Uh, Where can I put downbeats that make sense? So I do give a good bit of thought to that. It's not my primary concern. My primary concern is, is the music I'm writing going to convey whatever I'm dealing with here? But within that boundary, can I make this uh, as playable as possible for the people that have to do it? And if they say, why, did, why didn't you do it this way? I can say, I thought about that. And the reason I didn't do it that way was because, you see, it creates 10 times more problems. Well, and I think also when you said you, you're, you're more comfortable in the orchestral world, uh, I had the honor of studying with Chen Yi at Peabody Conservatory. And she sat me down when I had my first orchestra piece performed. And she taught me how to uh, navigate a rehearsal And Jesse, you were talking about, you know, you tell your students to sort of focus also on the playability of things. And, you know, as a young composer, I I hadn't realized that when orchestras rehearse, they are literally paying by the minute. And so for every moment of 
confusion you might have in your score or, or any possible question, you're costing that extra money and they're not going to want to have you back. Um, and so Chen Yi, you know, sort of sat me down and said, this is how you want to run a rehearsal. You want to be concise. You only speak when the conductor addresses you, you, you are prepared and ready to answer the question. You answer it and then be quiet. And, um, so that way of thinking, I think is, um, a, a great way to think musically in terms of a collaborative experience with the performers. And I think listeners hear that they sense that, but it's also a smart way to kind of, you know, we're not in an easy industry and it's a smart way to approach scores because we want them to play our music. <laughs> That's how we get paid. Right. <laughs> and even when it's not a paid orchestra, let's say a university concert band, the mm. rehearsal time is still precious. And if you go in with parts where some people have rehearsal letter B and some parts don't, I mean, things, it, it wastes time. And the band I was in at the University of Tennessee under W.J. Julian, wasting one second was the cardinal sin that was going to get you chewed out from here to eternity. Mm. Uh, and I'm glad I learned that because I give a lot of thought, like, how is this marked in the score? For instance, if there's a fermata on beat three for half the orchestra and the other half doesn't play, do they just get a whole note with the fermata? Well, they don't know where the conductor is going to hold. So in the part, you have two beats rest and then the fermata on beat three. So everybody can see, I know exactly what beat he's holding on. It takes a little extra time engraving. Careless engraving just ignores that. But and I know a lot of that, you know, to my years playing in the, um, the the concert bands and the orchestras at the University of Tennessee, I played in the Knoxville Symphony. I've done a lot of performing. And so you see the things like, yeah, I've gotten the parts that say 702 measures rest and then a cymbal crash. No right. numbers. The orchestra stops and they start again. You have no clue where they are. Hopefully you've looked at a score to say, I know the cymbal crash comes one bar after the trombones and I'll wait for them. So you really have to think about everybody in that orchestra or band does not have a score. They're looking at a part and they need a lot of information. So, well, I didn't mean to get off on that, but it's something for young composers. It's on the, the practical side of, you know, well, I mentioned about the violin uh, or did I mention that yet? That it's, um, Oh no, not on air. We were yeah. chatting. Yeah. The suspicion has the solo violin part. It plays a little at the beginning. It plays a little at the end, not in between. The reason for that, this was commissioned by Soprani Compagni, which is two sopranos and a pianist. And then if you're going to say, well, I also want a violinist, if they're going to go on a tour, they have a violinist that they now have to take along with them, which raises expenses, you know, another hotel room, this and that. So I thought, well, I want the violin really badly, but if I use a little at the beginning, a little at the end, and it's a very simple part, a good high school player can play it. You heard it. It's, you know, quarter notes, eighth notes. That way you can pick up a local violinist, say we need to rehearse these two minutes at the beginning, and then we're going to skip and, and rehearse these two minutes at the end. Now the violinist is good. For the sake of time, I want to go ahead and also switch gears a little bit and start talking about Jericho as well. Another lengthy piece of yours, um, this time on a grand scale, right, with orchestra and choir and narrator. And I was wondering, you know, it's such a rich piece. There's so much history behind it. Um, there's so much, you know, richness in the in the, the biblical text. And I have so many questions that I want to ask of you regarding the text and regarding this piece. But I wanted to ask if you could first just give a minute or so introduction to the piece, and then we'll take a listen. And then when we come back, we can talk more about it. Okay. Well, I call this a, um, a surround sound concert story on Joshua 6, concert band, and there's an orchestra version and narrator. And real quickly, what the audience, your radio audience will need to know before they hear it. 
the placement of the instruments, they are instruments all around the audience. So uh, there are six percussion stations, front, right, and left, middle, right, and left, rear, right, and left. Each one of those percussionists has a single chime, and you'll hear a spot early on where all those chimes are ringing. That's not a chime player on stage. That's six tubes from the chime set being rung around you. They each have a bass drum, and when it's time for the wall of Jericho to fall down, they make a racket. Uh, you know, for the, the rumble of an earthquake in the falling wall. They also do, when uh, Children of Israel march around the wall seven times, uh, those drums are playing sort of a war kind of a drum beat, and it fades from player to player. One uh, fades out, the other fades in. So in the audience, you're actually hearing these drums moving around you. Now, the people don't move, but, the you know, the crossfade makes it move. Then when you hear the seven priests sound the seven ram's horns trumpets, there's two trumpets in the balcony, right and left, behind the audience. There's one French horn to the right, one horn to the left, one horn in the rear. There's two trombones in the front, right and left. So there's actually seven different brass instruments playing shofar sounds, shofar type sounds, all in different keys. And then the rumble starts. It's a it's a racket. So I'll cut there, but so you can picture that there's, you'll hear sometimes like, why do those trumpets sound distant? So, because they're in the balcony. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I want to thank you for sharing your music and sharing the stories behind your music and sharing your own personal story with with the listeners here today. Well, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. I'm honored to be on. I've said I've heard some of the other episodes and I've been really impressed with what you guys are doing. It's more in depth than what is normal. And and I, I really enjoy that. Now, when Joshua drew close to Jericho, he looked. And behold, he saw a man standing opposite to him with sword drawn. And Joshua called out to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Neither. I am the captain of the armies of the living God. Remove your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua said to the people, 
says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the year of jubilee. Listening to the Composer's Studio, created and produced by Amy Scoria, Anna Linville, and Tara Giridella. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Studio. Pop over to our Facebook page for bonus links, music, tidbits, and news about our featured composers. You can also visit our website at www.composerstudionc.com. If you are a composer and interested in being considered for a feature on our show, reach out to us at composerstudionc at gmail.com or send us a note through our Facebook page or website. We'd love to hear from you. The opening music for our show was composed by Tarek Giridella, and the closing music was composed by Amy Scoria. Until next week, thank you for listening and opening your ears to the music of today. Thank you.